Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. How good, how very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down upon the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down over the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord ordained his blessing, life evermore. I'd like to speak to you for a few moments on the topic, like oil on Aaron's beard. It's a beautiful image, isn't it? But it's also a multivalent, provocative image as well. There's Aaron, the priest, Moses' brother, being anointed with oil. I'll spare you the theological arguments about the text, except to say that for this very short psalm, there have been pages and pages of theological arguments. Isn't it always that way? On the surface, the psalm seems to be about familial harmony. How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. The people in this text don't only live together, but they live together in unity. We're left to speculate whether they're blood kindred or kindred in some sort of guild. For example, they could be Aaron's fellow priests, the Levites. Or the text could, could refer to the people of Israel, related as they were by blood and nation. And it's quite an anointing Aaron has received, isn't it? This isn't just a spot of oil on his forehead. He appears to have been doused in oil, immersed in it. The original Hebrew tells us that this isn't just oil, but good or precious oil. And from the context, we can see that this excellent, expensive oil is being used quite unsparingly. It sounds like they just took a, a jug of it and poured the whole thing on Aaron's head. It flows down his head to his collar and over his beard. And that beard that to some extent distinguishes Aaron as a holy man before, before flowing all the way down to the hem of his priestly robes. The oil flows. It overflows, becoming one with his beard. In this, the image becomes multivalent as the oil flows, entangling every hair of Aaron's beard and becoming one with the, every wave and curl of every hair. It demonstrates both abundance and unity. Then the scene changes to the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. And we're reminded that we're talking about Zion, the holy city, Jerusalem. So we've moved from discussing the holy people, the priests of the temple, to the holy city, Jerusalem, and to the very presence of God, where the Lord ordained the blessing, life forevermore. Having begun with an anointing or a consecration, or as we might put it, an ordination of Aaron the high priest, 
The psalm ends in the holy city of Jerusalem where God's presence dwelt and the gift that only God can give, life evermore is bestowed. In the context of a kinship community, unity flows like precious oil, such that Aaron, the priest, is practically baptized in it. And God's blessing of life flows as abundantly as the oil, even life everlasting, life evermore. It's easy to forget this, but we believers are also called to be a royal priesthood just like Aaron is called to be. 1 Peter 2.9 puts it this way, but you are a chosen, pre chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That Hebrew Bible image of a Levitical priest being baptized in anointing oil, that's our calling in the New Testament. That image of Jerusalem, the location of the temple, the place of God's presence, that's us too. The Christian church ought to be the modern day instantiation of the Jerusalem temple. That's the church as it ought to be, the place where God's presence dwells. And the oil? In the Hebrew Bible, oil was used for many things. It was used to anoint or consecrate individuals to holy service. It was also used as a balm to heal wounds in an age before antibiotics. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is likened to oil in its work of healing, anointing, and abiding with the church. That whole, same Holy Spirit that the disciples received in John is also at work in us. Perhaps these images from Psalm 133 feel so beautiful to me precisely because it is so far from our present reality. The church and the world could not be farther from the picture of unity that this, this psalm depicts. I'm a fifth-generation United Methodist, living at a moment when my denomination is teetering on the brink of schism and division. At the moment, it doesn't feel like we can or do agree on anything. Moreover, some of the partisans are already squabbling over the property, as people might do in a particularly messy divorce. It's painful to watch. And yet, the denominational divide is still not as messy as our partisan politics, which divide this nation. And yet, our partisan political divide isn't as painful as any given day on social media, where total strangers impugn one another with ardor usually reserved for former lovers. I mean, I enjoy social media as much as the next person, and I've been known to share my share of cute puppy videos. But there is nothing like being on the receiving end of an accusatory social media pile-on where everyone has to put his two cents and his knife in. 
All I can tell you is to watch out for folks who claim to be Christians, but spend all of their time telling you what's wrong with other Christians. Be especially wary of those who cannot comprehend, cannot commend anyone else's Christian witness, but their own. Remember that it is impossible to build if you spend all of your energy being on the attack. But back to the text. How is the Christian church supposed to become unified in the way that Psalm 133 suggests? In a disconnected, disjointed, disfellowshipping age like this, it is easy to forget that the kinship relationship into which Jesus invited us ought to be like that oil in Aaron's beard, featuring both abundance and unity. We Christians are called to stand together like family, not like dysfunctional family, but like a loving one. John's Gospel records Jesus' instructions about love in the 13th chapter and the 35th verse, which reads, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Get that. We'll be known by our love, not by the purity of our doctrine, not by our absolute immaculate holiness, although that's absolutely important. We are to be distinguished from the world by our love for one another. By all means, live holy, you should. By all means, teach sound doctrine, you should do that too. But if you put those first and leave the love out, you'll be distinguished by your battles over holiness and doctrine rather than your love for one another. And Jesus wants us to be known by our love. As I think about churches I've known where people spend too much time beating one another over the head with their Bibles, I wonder if they've given any thought to the command to be distinguished by love. That's our call as Christians. We're called to love one another. Why lead by love? Well, for one thing, to love the world will absolutely require God's help. It will require the presence of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it on our own or in our flesh. Love like that is an absolute work of the Holy Spirit. Moreover, real love will distinguish us from the rest of the world. We should love others as God loves us. And this brings me to the second text that was read in your hearing this morning from the first epistle of John. This epistle probably wasn't written by the apostle John, but reflects the teachings that the Apostle John had passed on to his disciples. John's themes of love and life in the risen Christ are also reflected here in 1 John, where we are instructed about how our believing community can also be a loving and unified community. Don't you want to know how our Christian community can be distinguished by love? Well, listen to this from 1 John. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him 
and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The author of 1 John advises that we Christians walk in the light as God is in the light and that we be quick to repent when we are in error so that God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Did you notice the emphasis? The text uses the first person plural over and over again, we and us. Those within the church are to repent quickly when we are in error. Those within the church are to be cleansed from all unrighteousness. If those within the church say that we have no sin, we're not telling the truth. It's hard to be holier than thou when you're so often on your knees, repenting. This text puts the onus for the church's problems squarely on the church. If the church is divided, it is the church that is at fault. Too much sin, too little love. A Gallup poll revealed this week that church, mosque, and synagogue membership in the U.S. fell below 50% of the population for the first time since Gallup began taking polls. Indeed, the proportion of Americans who were members of Christian churches has been in a steady decline for years. In 2020, 47% of Americans said they belonged to a church, synagogue, or mosque, down from 50% in 2018 and 70% in 1999. Americans under the age of 40, millennials and Generation Z, are opting out of church membership at alarming rates. Currently, 31% of millennials have no religious affiliation, which is up from 22% a decade ago. Similarly, 33% of the portion of Generation Z that has reached adulthood have no religious preference. In just the past 10 years, the share of religious millennials who are church members has declined from 63% to 50%. Also, each generation of Americans has seen a decline in church membership among those who do affiliate with a specific religion. Hidden in those findings are a few surprises. One is that most of the people who have left churches are white. What's dramatically declining in the U.S. is white Christianity. People of color are actually preventing a more precipitous drop in overall church participation. Those we call the nuns, 
N-O-N-E-S, or people who claim no religious affiliation. You know, those folks who enjoy lattes in downtown coffee shops on Sunday mornings instead of singing in church are largely young, hip, and white. But the country's demographic future as a whole is becoming more racially and ethnically diverse. And this will impact the religious landscape. Another factor keeping the US from slipping deeper into secularism is immigration. Sociologists also report that the experience of immigration decreases the intensity of, um, increases the intensity of whatever religious convictions are held by migrants. Immigrants find religious homes in the U.S. within existing congregations and through establishing new ones, often using the facilities of declining churches. Denominations rooted in Africa and Asia now have hundreds of congregations throughout the U.S., which continue to grow. As much as Hispanics have supported Catholicism's numbers, Today, there are more Latinx Protestants in the U.S. than there are Episcopalians. Another surprise is that after decades of decline, mainline denominations like the United Methodist Church and the Episcopal Church are experiencing a slight uptick in membership. On the other hand, after decades of growth, evangelical churches like the Southern Baptist Convention are now shrinking perhaps because of their too close association with polarizing partisan conservative politics that's also turning off young Americans. Congregations like this one are standing on the brink of a generational divide. If you are to survive an increasingly diverse America as Christendom becomes less white, you will have to become less white too. You will have to create an atmosphere that's welcoming to people of color and younger people if you are to survive. It's that simple. The future of the church increasingly lies with people of color and with immigrants. You'll also have to go after the whites who have decided that Christianity isn't for them. Many of the nuns people who claim no religious affiliation, aren't all a religious. They aren't all agnostics or even atheists. Many of them are people who have been hurt by conservative evangelical churches. That's why they've left. They've been hurt by bad theology and they've been mistreated by authoritarian regimes or profit-making schemes dressed up to look like churches. They've left evangelicalism, but may not yet have given up on Christianity altogether. We've got to win back as many of them as we can, but we won't win them back with better theology or snappier doctrines. The only way we can win them back is with love. We're going to have to love them back. This week, a dear friend, a childhood friend, passed away suddenly and unexpectedly. 
He posted on Facebook on Monday and Tuesday, talked to friends on the phone, did the usual things. Thursday morning, they found him dead. My friend Rodney would have laughed to hear that I was calling his name from a pulpit today because although I've always believed that he had a reverence for God, he had a complicated relationship with the church. And there are a lot of Rodneys out there. If you don't hear anything else I, I say today, hear this. Let me encourage you to go after the Rodneys in your life, old friends, estranged family, whoever, and speak words of reconciliation and peace to them. Don't wait. You don't have an unlimited amount of time to get this right. I'm not saying go after folks who've hurt or abused you. That's a longer, more complicated topic for another sermon. But if someone's name came to your mind just now, or if you can sense your fault in the fracture, go and repent to those from whom you are estranged. Go and make it right before it's too late. Go before you run out of time. How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. Before we can claim that unity, we'll have to repent of everything that has separated us by age, by race, and by national origin. We'll have to go back and get the folks we've left by the wayside. People don't want another slick program or catchy mathematical doctrine. People need the Lord. People need love. People need to feel the healing balm of the Holy Spirit flowing all around them like a baptism. How very good and pleasant it is when kindred, kindred live together in unity. Amen.